Welcome to Mark Connor's podcast. For more information, visit markconnor.com.au. We're going to turn to Matthew. We've been looking at some of the stories and teaching of Jesus over the last few weeks. So Matthew 24 is where we're going tonight. So if you've got that uh, with you, uh, let me read verses 1 to 3. Matthew 24, 1 to 3 in the NIV. Jesus left the temple and was walking away. Two very symbolic actions. He left the temple. He was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings. The, the temple buildings in the first century were magnificent, beautiful. Herod had built them all. And the disciples say, hey, check out the incredible buildings that are here. And, and Jesus says, do you see all these things? Uh, truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So Jesus wasn't too impressed with what they'd built and actually predicted their destruction. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives a little later, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The disciples asked Jesus three questions. Number one, when will this happen? When will the temple be destroyed? Number two, what is the sign of your coming, your appearance, your return? And what about the end of the age or the end of the world? And so if you keep reading through Matthew 24, Jesus gives a lot of details about some of the signs of the times and answers those questions. And then in Matthew 25, he tells them three parables. Parable of the ten virgins, parable of the talents, parable of the sheep and goats, which give them instructions about how to live in those kinds of times. And we've looked at a couple of those parables the last few weeks. So the first question, when is the temple going to be destroyed? Well, we know that it was destroyed in AD 70. Uh, The Romans came into Jerusalem and Jesus' words were fulfilled to the letter. Every stone was turned over as the gold melted. And uh, it's quite an amazing record that Josephus gives us. So we know the answer to that. But the other two questions, when are you coming back and when is the end of the world? These are questions that have continued to be asked throughout history and right through up until recent times. In fact, I think there's an intensification uh, in the world today of people wanting to know when is Jesus coming back and when will the end of the world actually be? Just this week, I read an article um, of someone writing about Nostradamus. Anyone heard of Nostradamus? He was a French seer who wrote a bunch of prophecies in the 1500s and someone's dug some of them up and reckoned that he predicted that Donald Trump would win the election. (laughs) Apparently he did that. And right after that, the world would end. (laughs) So there you go. It's near. It's near. There was another article in one of the papers this week uh, talking about all the supermoons. Anyone noticed uh, there's been three supermoons this year? And the last time that happened was 1948 when Israel became a nation. And so who knows, this could be a sign of the end. Now, some of you, this is a little new to you. As a kid, I heard sermons about the end times almost every week. Anyone remember those days, the good old days, end times, teaching? In fact, when I was nine, uh, my family went to America. My dad was, was and is a Bible teacher and got invited to teach at some conferences and seminars and uh, camp meetings on the west coast of America. So we went for three months, uh, ended up staying for 18 months. My dad get, uh, kept getting more and more in- invitations. And so I went to 800 church services in 18 months. Can you believe that? That's why I'm so godly and spiritual. And- <laughs> 
spent a lot of time in church. I used to go to the kids program the first few months, but it got a bit boring. So I ended up coming into the big people's meeting, sitting on the front row with my notepad, taking notes on my dad. So, you know, by the age of nine, I had it all down. Uh, in fact, I remember saying to my dad one conference, so dad, you're going to talk about the, uh, the you know, Armageddon, the end of the world, the mark of the beast and the Antichrist, or don't you think the people are ready for that just yet? <laughs> So, you know, in my younger years, end times was kind of the main diet. It kind of faded out. I don't know, maybe the end didn't come, so people kind of thought we'd better get on and talk about some other things. So nowadays, probably not as much kind of end time teaching, so I thought, why not? Let's have a message this weekend and talk a little bit about how will it all end. Uh, just to begin, I think we need to realize that end times fever ha- has been around for 2,000 years. Uh, in the first 100 years, in fact, many people in uh, around the 90s AD thought that 100 AD would be the end of the world and the return of Jesus. In the early 200s, uh, a Christian leader named Hippolytus, there's a pretty cool name, Hippolytus, he studied the book of Daniel. Uh, it's amazing how the book of Daniel leads to a lot of conspiracies, and he actually studied the book of Daniel and predicted that Jesus would return in 496 AD. How many think if you're going to make a prediction, it's good to make it after you die, so then when it doesn't happen, no one kind of stones you for being a a false prophet? Well, he he predicted 496. Uh, Around the 200s, there were other leaders that predicted dates and took people out into the desert waiting on the day. And no show. Jesus didn't kind of show and turn up, leading to, leading to a lot of disappointment and actually devastating many people that it didn't happen. Uh, many people have speculated about the Great Tribulation. In 303 AD, there was persecution uh, against the church. And uh, some were saying the Roman Emperor Diocletian was the first beast in Revelation 13. And Caesar Galerius was the second beast coming out of the sea. Of course, the persecution eventually ended. And in 312, Constantine apparently had an experience with Jesus and peace came into the church and some thought that the millennium, the thousand year reign had come. Well, of course, history kept moving. Uh, In the 900s, as it was coming up to 1000 AD, there was again all kinds of end time conspiracies and theories that maybe 1000 AD would be the end of the world and the return of Jesus. Well, we're here. We know it passed. Uh, In the 1300s, the bubonic plague killed 40% of the European population. Can you imagine that? 40%. And so many thought the end of the world was near. Uh, Many have speculated about the Antichrist. Uh, Luther believed that the Catholic Pope of his time was the Antichrist. Of course, the Pope, Hadrian VI, thought that Luther was the Antichrist because he was attacking the church at that time. Uh, Many other individuals in history have been labeled the Antichrist. Nero, some people thought he was the Antichrist. Napoleon, Hitler, uh, even Ronald Reagan, some people said was the Antichrist because his name is Ronald Wilson Reagan. And if you add up the numbers of his name, it's 666. Six, Ronald Wilson Reagan. Some of you are counting your name right now. I know, Mark, and I'm okay. And Donald Trump, his middle name's John, so just relax. It's not, not, not President Trump either. And so people have predicted who is the Antichrist. And then in the 1800s, uh, there was revivals in the church and awakenings, Jonathan Edwards and Charles Finney. In fact, God was moving so much, people thought that the church would take over the world and evil would actually disappear and Jesus would then come. 
Charles Finney said, if the church will do her duty, the millennia will come in three years. Well, then the, the American Civil War kind of burst that optimism and lots of problems in the world uh, kind of uh, faded those predictions. There was a farmer named William Miller. And uh, he, again, studied the prophecies in Daniel. And he predicted the world would end in 1844. 25 years ahead of when he made this prediction. Optimism filled the air in America. Uh, he started traveling everywhere th with, with his associates, preaching to thousands of people, spreading literature, going from city to city in America, preaching sermons such as, are you ready to meet the Savior? And so there was all this expectation. 50,000 people, it's estimated, believed in Miller, and as many as a million others were curious and expectant. And so the date came, March 21st, 1844. And guess what? <laughs> come on, you're smart. Nothing happened. Jesus didn't come back, and they were devastated. Well, one of his followers found a remote scripture in the book of Habakkuk about a delay of seven months, ten days. So a new date was set, October 22nd, 1844. And so they were excited. Of course, you know, the second date came and went, and the first one uh, was the same, and most of his followers were completely disillusioned. Many were bitter, and Miller died in 1849, a discredited and forgotten man. End times fever. End of the 1800s, we've got World War I, earthquakes, polio, flu epi epidemics, the Titanic sinking, the world's getting worse, not better. Surely the end is nearing. Then in the 1900s, we've got World War II, there's further eschatological frenzy, uh, the world's not becoming better, there's two world wars, a depression, Hitler, Mussolini, Holocaust, environmental crisis, atomic weapons, there's no safe place on earth, and so a host of prophetic and apple apocalyptic literature rolled off the evangelical presses from the 1960s to the 1980s. Stay with me in our time machine here. One example is Hal Lindsey who wrote the book The Late Great Planet Earth. It was one of the best-selling non-fiction books of the 70s, sold 35 million copies, 50 languages, and it focused on the signs of the times, the Antichrist, the Battle of Armageddon. He predicted the return of Christ in 1988 and the rapture of the church seven years earlier. Well, how many know the date came and went and nothing happened? Christian rock singer Larry Norman wrote a song called I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And this song was played several times in a movie called The Thief in the Night. Anyone remember The Thief in the Night? You're showing your age if you put your hand up. 1972, a four-part series focusing on a one-world government, a mark of the beast, and an appeal to become a Christian now. Uh, in the early 1980s. I was a teenager then, and uh, there was a man in America who wrote a little booklet called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. <laughs> Thousands of copies sold. Well, 1988 came and went, and Jesus didn't return. The following year, true story, he wrote a sequel called 89 Reasons Why Jesus <laughs> Will Come Back in 1989. The extra one being he didn't come back last year. Uh, people predicted 1994, George Orwell. That was kind of a key date. And then to anyone remember Y2K? Come on, the world was going to melt down. Computer operators got a lot of money in those days, you know, fixing computers and, you know, what's going to happen when it goes from 1999 to 2000? Well, we're still here. 
We're still here. Um, movies have been made with a focus on end times, Mad Max, Terminator, Armageddon, Deep Impact, The Matrix, Day After Tomorrow, all have an end of the world theme. And then there were the Christian novels called Left Behind. Left Behind by Tim LaHaye. Time Magazine named them one of the best-selling fiction series of our time. 65 million copies read mainly by Christians. Led to many conversations about the end of the world. They've even got a uh, left-behind video game. There's a couple of movies, Nicolas Cage, not one of his better acting moments I hear. Uh, and so they had a big impact. Actually, Tim LaHaye passed away in July of this year at the age of 90. God bless him. He's left us all behind. <laughs> so, end time fever is alive and well. So, as we introduce tonight's message, I want to propose that it's vitally important that we all have a clear understanding, those of us who are followers of Christ, of the end times, so that we aren't thrown or swayed by various trends or world events. And so we want to do a message on this tonight. Now, <clears throat> if you've ever... Um, Visit a city, you know, if someone comes to Melbourne for the first time and you want to see Melbourne, you could just start walking down every road, every laneway, every alley, and you'll get a lot of details of the city. You'll probably get a little overwhelmed and a little lost in a city as big as Melbourne. There's another way to see the city, and that is to get in a helicopter. And uh, a helicopter lifts you above all the detail, and you can actually see an overview of, oh, there's the CBD, the Central Business District, there's the Yarra, there's St. Kilda, there's Albert Lake Park, there's... Uh, uh, you know, Turak, and, and so a helicopter gives you a bit of an overview, and then you can decide later, I want to go and walk there. You can do the same with a topic like end times. We could just start walking down the street, Matthew 24, verse 4, verse 5, and we'll be here a long time by the time we get to the book of Revelation. So what we're going to do today is we want to get in a helicopter, as it were, and just kind of fly above all of the New Testament teachings and just look at a bit of an overview, an outline of some of the key aspects of end times. And so I just encourage you just to fasten your seatbelts, uh, put your thinking caps on. You may get a little bit of turbulence or a little bit of fair, feel a bit of air pressure, but it'll be okay. We'll land all right before we finish. Uh, don't, don't try to take any notes. Let me tell you, uh, how many know sometimes you're taking photos of things, you don't actually see anything because all you're doing is taking photos of things. So, so don't try to take it all down. You can always listen to the podcast. There'll be an extended life group discussion available and everything I share tonight, the outline will be up on my blog. So we all ready to go? Yes. Okay, thank you for that enthusiastic response. We're all ready to go. You could, you could climb the Eureka Tower. There's another metaphor if you're kind of not into helicopters. So let's go. I want to start with, first of all, making a few observations about the second coming. A few observations about the second coming of Jesus. Three particularly. Number one, Jesus will come again. There'll be a few spots in this message where you can say amen, like if that's a real positive uh, thing. There'll be some other spaces where you don't want to say amen, but you know, this is a good one. Jesus will come again. Amen. That's good news, isn't it? Uh, 2,000 years delay does not alter the fact that we believe Jesus will come back. Uh, the early church held strongly to the belief about Jesus' return. In fact, they had a greeting uh, that they used to use when they they saw one another, they'd often say Maranatha. Everyone say Maranatha. You just learnt a little bit of Aramaic. And Maranatha means come Lord Jesus. 
that often finish a meeting by Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. In fact, the theme of the second coming of Jesus is a major emphasis in the entire New Testament. One in every 25 verses, some entire chapters, some entire books. Uh, there are more references to the second coming of Jesus in the New Testament than any other subject. And so we believe Jesus will come again, literally, visibly, physically, personally to receive us to himself. And the first coming was in humility and lowliness, a little baby in a manger. The second coming coming's going to be in glory and majesty as he returns. And so if you want to know what will be the event that will finish this age as we know it, it won't be a nuclear bomb. It won't be an asteroid hitting the planet Earth. It won't be a final world war. It will be the return of Jesus. Jesus will be the uh, one who marks the end of this age as we know it. He's the Alpha, the beginning, and the Omega, the end of history as we understand it. So Jesus will return. Number two, no one knows exactly when. If you read through Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus says, No one knows the day, the hour, not the angels, not even the Son, but only the Father. How many think if Jesus says only the Father knows, we're probably a little unwise to predict the day and the hour? If only Father God knows, then really uh, we actually just create an opportunity for the gospel to be mocked when we actually set dates and times because no one knows exactly when. However, we can know the times and the seasons. We can read the signs and we can be prepared so that we're not taken unaware when Jesus returns. And then thirdly, the second coming completes what Jesus began at his first coming. On the cross, uh, Jesus conquered Satan and sin and sickness and death. But we live in this in-between time. Theologians call it the now and the not yet. Now, Satan is already defeated. But how many know not yet is he fully been put into a lake of fire. Now, sin has already been atoned for and forgiveness is available, but not yet do we see sin eradicated from our world. Now, sickness has been defeated, but not yet has sickness uh, been totally removed from our world. Uh, now, death has already been defeated, but how many know not yet has death actually lost its last battle? Uh, our bodies are decaying, and if you're over 50, you're very aware that your bodies are getting a little older. Under 50, you think you are immutable, you'll live forever. Uh, and, and so Satan, sin, sickness, and death have already been conquered, but we live in this in-between time when Jesus will complete what he did at the first coming through his return. And so there's coming a day when Satan and his demonic forces will be cast into the lake of fire. There's coming a day when sin will be cleansed from the earth. There's coming a day when there'll be no more sickness and pain. There's coming a day when death, the last enemy will be destroyed. That day is the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's something to look forward to, isn't it? Something to place our hope upon. And so the first coming of Jesus began what will be complete at the second coming of Jesus. And so there are a few thoughts about Jesus' return. He will return. No one knows the date or the hour, but his second coming will complete all that was began at the first coming. 
All right, as we move along in our helicopter view, let's make a few preliminary comments about understanding the end time teaching in the New Testament. We have the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24. We've got some writings in the letters, Second Thessalonians, about the second coming. We've got the whole book of Revelation. Uh, anyone read the book of Revelation? I haven't yet met anyone who read it the first time and went, boy, that was easy. You got that. That was simple, man. Is there a sequel? In fact, I know people that have read it many a times and are still scratching their head. Beasts and fire and angels and seals and trumpets. And it's a book full of symbolic language and prophetic pictures. And uh, even my dad, who's read it many, many times and written books on it, uh, still doesn't understand it all. And so when we look at all the end time teaching in the Bible, uh, there's a number of approaches to how we interpret it for our lives today. Let me just give these without kind of becoming a Bible college lecture, it's really important that you understand these different approaches to end time teaching. Uh, Three basic approaches to interpreting. One is called the preterist or the past view. This views all of Jesus' teaching in the book of Revelation as being fulfilled in the first century of the Christian era. In effect, Jesus' teaching, book of Revelation, was comforting Christians back then. Rome was the enemy. Judaism was the enemy. And so all of the end time teaching of the Bible, it's all been fulfilled in the past. And so we shouldn't be looking for any uh, particular fulfillment in today's time. There's a whole stream of interpreters that have that view. And this view has a, a fair amount of merit because Jesus' teaching, the book of Revelation, were spoken and written to real people living in real times under real pressure, real persecution. And the arguments for a direct correlation between the events predicted and what happened in the first century are actually quite convincing. However, I would like to say that like all biblical books and like all prophecy, I think to limit all of this end-time teaching just to the first century is a bit inadequate because all prophecy has layers of relevance and interpretation. And so although it was relevant to the first generation, it does still speak to things that are yet to happen in the time of the end. So that's the first view. It's all in the past. A second view is called the historicist view or the literal view or the futurist view that sees revelation as kind of predicting historical events throughout the centuries of time right up to today. Again, this has some good uh, things going for it. I mean, the first coming of Jesus fulfilled a lot of prophecies. It makes sense that the second coming will fulfill a lot of prophecies. Uh, the, the difficult thing is when people try to match a contemporary event with a prophecy in Scripture and say, well, yeah, you know, Nero's the beast or, you know, Ronald Reagan or whoever. Once we start to try to match historical events, then we get easily caught up into conspiracy theories that uh, tend to generate fear and speculation. And so there's a lot of danger in trying to apply prophecies to specific historical experiences. And so that's the second view. The third view is the idealist view or the figurative or spiritual view. And this says, you know, all of this teaching, really, it's just symbolic. It's just prophetic. It's talking about the battle between darkness and light. And we win in the end. And we shouldn't be looking for any literal or any historical fulfillment to all of this teaching in the Bible. Again, this view has a lot going for it because there are uh, battles between darkness and light and we can see much of the teaching is very symbolic. 
but to limit it all to spiritual realities without any relevance to what's happening historically, I think is a little bit inadequate. So which is the right view? Well, I think they all have some strengths and weaknesses, and I think we can actually uh, glean the best of them as we approach our understanding of end time. So what I want to do uh, in the next part of our message is just put out a bit of a, an idea of an order of events of what could happen between now and the coming of Jesus, what events are yet to happen, what will happen at the return of Jesus, and what could happen after his return. And, and let me say, when we talk about end times, it's really important not to be dogmatic because none of us really know all of the answers and you definitely need to have an open mind. How many know the scribes and Pharisees actually crucified Jesus with the Bible under their arm? They had all the Old Testament prophecies and they crucified Jesus. They actually missed the first coming because they had preconceived ideas of the way it would happen. I think that's a challenge for us just to go, yeah, Jesus is coming, end times are upon us, but, but let's actually not be dogmatic in our arguments about the details. Here at City Life, we have no official party line when it comes to end time teaching. We actually allow for diversity. If you look at our doctrine, our statement of faith, yes, we believe in the second coming. We believe in eternity. We believe in consequences for choices. But when it comes to all the details, uh, we actually allow for some diversity in how we may approach that. So let's jump into it. What's going to happen, first of all, before the second coming of Jesus? Now, I could take you to uh, two kinds of Bible verses. Uh, some are positive, some are negative. Some are good news, some are bad news. Would you like the good news or the bad news? <laughs> i tell you what, how about we start with the bad news? Uh, there is some bad news, but the good news looks a lot better in the context of bad news. Um, and just to give you an example of the, the mixture of good and bad news, just take a prophecy like Isaiah 60, verses 1. Listen to this prophecy. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. I mean, that's a pretty good prophecy. But if you keep reading, he then goes, Darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness over the peoples. This guy's having a good day, bad day. It's kind of like, make up your mind. You said light, you said darkness. And then he goes on and says, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Can you see that there's actually two streams here? Darkness, light, good, bad. And I think we're actually going to see both growing and accelerating up until the coming of Jesus. So let's look at the bad news first, the negative things. Uh, I'm going to give you four streams of scripture. Firstly, between now and the return of Jesus, we're told that spiritual darkness will intensify. Spiritual darkness will intensify. Jesus told us that prior to his coming, it'd be like the days of Noah, like the days of Lot. There'd be violence, conflict, corruption. Jesus said there'd be great deception, many false prophets, and many would struggle to hold on to their faith. Uh, secondly, we're told that there'd be great tribulation or pressure, times of pressure between now and Jesus' return. 
wars, diseases, earthquakes, and persecution of believers. How many know? It doesn't take a lot to see the news, and you can see a fair amount of darkness in our world, a fair amount of pressure, and, and some terrible things happening in our world at this particular time. And that's only going to accelerate. Uh, thirdly, there's this revelation of the Antichrist. Uh, Antichrist means against Christ, or in place of Christ, or setting up to compete with Christ. And we're told that there's a spirit of Antichrist at work in the world. Uh, we often see this. The name of Jesus is daily cursed. And uh, th th there's a spirit of Antichrist in our world. Uh, John tells us there'll be many Antichrists. And then uh, Paul himself in 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about the Antichrist that will be revealed before Jesus returns. And so we've got spiritual darkness growing. We've got persecution and tribulation. We've got this Antichrist uh, spirit at work in the world. And God's judgments are also going to be revealed in the world. The book of Revelation talks about a pouring out of people reaping the consequences of their decisions. And so uh, there are a whole bunch of scriptures that would say between now and when Jesus comes, it's going to get worse. It's going to get darker. It's going to get more intense. Uh, ready for some good news? We should be ready for some good news because there's another whole bunch of scriptures that would actually say the light is going to get brighter. Uh, four things. There's going to be a worldwide outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all people. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, we had the Spirit poured out. But it says again in the last days, there'll be another outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we can see this. Last hundred years, the Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement, many moves of God. How many are excited about the Holy Spirit working in our world? He's going to be outpoured on all people. Secondly, there's going to be a great spiritual harvest. Many people will become followers of Jesus. The gospel is going to be preached to every nation. And Revelation says around the throne, there'll be people from every tribe, every people group glorifying Jesus. And so how many know we've still got a little bit of work to do in our work of mission? And then thirdly, uh, I believe there's going to be a glorious church before Jesus returns. Now, Jesus' last prayer was that his church would be one. How many think Jesus' prayers will actually be answered? I kind of think they will. Uh, so the church is going to be united. It's going to be victorious. Jesus says it's like a, an advancing movement that the gates of hell won't even be able to stop. And it's going to be glorious. Ephesians 5, uh, 25 to 27, Paul says Jesus is going to present himself, to, uh, the church to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle, like a beautiful bride on her wedding day. How many know brides look amazing? Not mud on their shoes and curlers in their hair. No, no, they're ready to go. They're looking amazing. Well, I think it doesn't take a lot of discernment to see the church is not too united yet. It's not that victorious yet, and it's not that glorious just yet. So there's more work to be done, but that's the kind of church Jesus is coming for. And then fourthly, a fulfillment of all true prophetic words. Everything the prophets have been, has spoken will be fulfilled, will come to pass. In fact, Acts 3 kind of implies in verse 19 to 21 that the heavens are holding back, retaining Jesus until everything God has spoken has been accomplished. Here's a good question. Uh, could Jesus come back tonight? Yes. Of course he could. He could do whatever he wants. Will Jesus come back tonight? No. Some of you aren't sure. 
He could come back tonight. I don't think Jesus will come back tonight because there's still a bunch of things that have to be done, that have to be accomplished in the world before Jesus returns. And so that's the good news. We've got Holy Spirit outpouring. We've got worldwide harvest. We've got a glorious church. We've got all prophetic words being fulfilled. And so if you're a pessimist, it's easy to look at the darkness and say it's getting worse. If you're an optimist, you can look at all the good things. How many know we actually need to realize the darkness and light are growing together and this is going to intensify until the coming of Jesus. And so when you put on the news, Jesus says, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Another war, another earthquake. These are the birth pains. These are signs of leading to the end. And so we live in exciting but also challenging times. So there's some things that will happen between now and the coming of Jesus. Everyone doing all right so far? Doing okay? Good. So what's going to happen at the return of Jesus? I want to read a couple of verses from 1 Thessalonians 4 to you. Verses 13 to 18. Have a listen to this. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We believe Jesus died, rose again, and we believe God will bring with Jesus those who have died in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you we who are still alive and are left at the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have died. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the angel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we'll be with the Lord forever. Encourage one another with these words. Wow. Paul tells us a lot about what's going to happen the moment Jesus returns. Jesus will appear in glory, loud command, voice of the archangel, trumpet call. This is, uh, this is a lot different than the first coming, angelic host, every eye seeing him. So Jesus appears in glory. We're told in other places that many of those who have rejected Jesus will be shocked and will run from his presence. And then there's the resurrection of everyone who's believed in God throughout history whose spirits are in heaven waiting will actually rise from the dead with new glorified bodies as Jesus returns. And then there's this catching up of those who are alive. How many know there's a generation who will never die, who will be alive when Jesus returns? That's been the desire of every generation. And so for them, they're caught up to meet with Jesus and all the saints of all times together to be with the Lord. So what a day that will be. I tell you what, uh, more amazing than any movie you've ever seen as the culmination of history happens on the day Jesus returns. No more pain, no more crying, no more suffering, reunited with our loved ones. And so then what happens? Jesus returns, amazing day. What happens after Jesus returns? Well, there's a few things we read about in the text in the scripture on the end times. There's a time of reward for us who are believers. We uh, are not just measured on our salvation, but what do we do with our life, with our talents, as we talked about last week? There's a judgment of the devil and his angels who will be cast into the lake of fire. Uh, and then there's eternity in either heaven or hell based on our choices in life. There's a judgment for unbelievers. The book of life is opened. And those who have accepted Jesus will spend forever in heaven 
heaven, a place more wonderful than you, you could ever imagine. And there's this sense also that although God wants no one to perish, no one to uh, actually miss that opportunity of forgiveness, that some will reject. Some will reject the grace of God. And although hell wasn't made for people, it was made for the devil, there'll be people who actually refuse God's grace in their life. And so there's eternity in heaven or hell, and then the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. God getting us back to his original purpose in creating us. So if you read the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2 have a perfect world with no sin. If you go right to the end of the Bible, Revelations 21 and 22 have a perfect world with no sin. How many know we've got a long detour in between? A long detour, human history unfolding our rebellion and yet God pursuing us, redeeming us, saving us, rescuing us. And so in the end, we actually get back to God's original purpose and what an amazing future eternity will be. And so there are a few thoughts on what may happen after the return of Jesus. Now, we've covered a fair bit, a bit of history of end times fever, a few comments about Jesus' return and coming, what may happen before and at and after. And so I suppose the big question is, in light of all this, how should we live our lives? How should you and I live our lives in our generation? I think we should live ready for Jesus to come at any moment. We should all be prepared and ready for Jesus' return, but also working diligently as if he may not come back in our lifetime. I think we should avoid extremes. Uh, we should avoid being preoccupied with end times, waiting for some rapture to get us all out of this God-forsaken mess and let's get out of here. Uh, on the other hand, we want to avoid the extreme of thinking we're going to make a heaven on earth and we don't really need Jesus to return. We'll fix all the problems of the world. I love what Tony Campolo said many years ago. Any theology that does not live with a sense of the immediate return of Christ is a theology that takes the edge of the urgency of faith. But any theology that does not cause us to live as though the world may be here for thousands of years is a theology that leads into social irresponsibility. What a great statement. Uh, we, we want to live with an urgency, but also with a wisdom uh, that realizes Jesus may not come back in our lifetime. There's many generations that hoped he would and it didn't. And we would be foolish to think that we're going to be the generation and then actually not live with the wisdom to think about raising the next generation and preparing for our future. And so how, how should we live? Uh, three final things. Number one, live with full devotion to the Lord. These times are not a time to be lukewarm or apathetic or half-hearted. This is a time to love Jesus with all of our heart. I, I think the most important thing in our life is knowing God. When life is over, what really matters is knowing God. And so this is a time, church, for us to pursue God, to love Him with all of our heart. Secondly, to live our life in the light of eternity. As we shared from the parable of the talents last week, our gifts, our resources that we've been given, uh, Jesus has given us some instructions for how to live until he comes. And so we need to make sure we don't just read the Bible, but we actually do what it says. You know, if you're a parent and you tell your kid to take out the rubbish, you don't want them to turn around and go, hey, good word, dad, good word, mom, love that word. 
You're not wanting applause about a good word. You're actually wanting them to do what you ask them to do. And I think sometimes we read the Bible. Oh, that was a great sermon. Oh, I really like that. Oh, that's a good song. You know, uh, no, no. Jesus, when he comes back, he wants to know, did you do what I asked you to do? And so it's loving him with all of our heart, but actually following his instructions. Faith without works is actually dead. It's useless. So live our life in the light of eternity. And thirdly, and finally, live with an evangelistic edge. Live with an evangelistic edge. Uh, we want to make heaven's priority our priority. What's heaven's priority? Uh, shared this before, Luke 15, Jesus tells about a lost coin, a lost sheep, a lost son. In the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep, at, at the end, when the coin is found, when the sheep is found, there's rejoicing, there's celebration. Same with the prodigal. But after the first two parables, Jesus says, in the same way, there is more joy. Everyone say, more joy. More joy. One more time. More joy. There is more joy in heaven when one lost person is found and returns to the Father. I don't know about you, but I, I kind of think heaven's a joyful place. I think heaven's a happy place. It's a joyful place. And when we gather together tonight and we're singing, I kind of see heaven bopping a little bit. Heaven's joyful when we're worshiping. When Andrew's exhorting us today, heaven's going, yeah, hallelujah. Uh, when we're doing the greeting time, heaven's joyful. Hopefully when the preaching's on today, heaven's still joyful. <laughs> Preach it, young guy. You're still doing all right. Uh, you know, when we finish and have a little bit of prayer, heaven's joyful. But you know what? When one lost person who's far from God, comes near to God. The Bible says the joy level in heaven goes up. There's more joy. Come on. More joy when one person uh, comes close to God. And so that should be our priority. Uh, the good news is we don't have to do this whole mission thing by ourselves. Uh, God is a missionary God. If he wants no one to go to hell and no one to perish, I reckon he's busy making sure that that's a possibility for every person in our world. And so we don't have to do all the work, but we can partner with God, focusing on that one person you're praying for, praying for your neighbors, praying for your family, going on a mission trip. What's that all about? Well, we just want to make sure everyone has an opportunity to know God as we do. And so those are some thoughts on how we should live in these times. Love God with all your heart, live in the light of eternity, and live with an evangelistic edge. So as we kind of bring our helicopter down, hopefully your ears aren't popping too too much. Uh, you know, there are so many details and so many laneways. You might go, hey, what was he talking about that? We didn't even talk about the millennium or the views on the rapture or the great tribulation. And so you might want to go, oh, I want to kind of go back and go down some of those areas and learn a little bit more. And so I'd encourage you to do some reading and some study. Uh, th there's a, a group of books that I, I really like. They're put out by Zondervan, but uh, they're called the Counterpoint Series. And they bring two or three or four different theologians in with different views. They're all Christians, but different views on some of these end times matters. And they write a chapter each, and then they interact with each other. I, I kind of love that idea of just sitting down and saying, hey, well, how do you see that? Well, what about this? What about this? And so there are some books like this, four views on the book of Revelation, three views on the rapture, three views on the millennium, four views on hell. Second edition is actually really good because most Christians believe in hell, but who's there? How hot is it? How long is it? 
do you stay there forever? Do you ever get another chance? These are the kind of conversations that are happening today. Four views on health, four views on salvation, four views on eternal security, four views on the role of works at the final judgment. It's just a great series. If you go, wow, I'd like to know a little bit more about that, I'd encourage you to do some more reading and some more exploring uh, so that we can live alert and passionate in these end times. And so end of the world, don't be ignorant about the end times. Be prepared. Be ready. Uh, make sure you've asked for God's forgiveness and Jesus is your Savior. He's your Lord. He's leading your life. And then live every day with a sense of purpose and passion. Most of us have uh, been to a cemetery at some time, and cemeteries are a little bit sober, a little bit serious places to go to, but it does remind us of the shortness and the frailty of life. And if you've ever been to a cemetery and seen one of those uh, gravestones, uh, usually there's someone's name, John Smith, and then they have a birth date, and they have their death date, and they have a little hyphen, a little dash in between. That's all you get for your life. Right there, just a little dash, a little hyphen. You know, for all of us here today, we know our name, we know our birth date, we don't know when our life will end, but right now we're living in that dash. We're living in that little hyphen, that little place called life. Life is really short, but eternity is really, really long. And so it just is a good reminder to go, wow, I've got one life to live. As I said last week, it isn't a dress rehearsal. This isn't a practice run. Oh, I stuffed that life up. Let me, let me rewind and do another one. You get one life to live. And so make it the best dash that you can. Uh, live your life in light of eternity. Everyone said amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, today. We've covered a lot of territory in a little bit of a helicopter view of end times and the second coming. And Lord, be some people here that maybe are more confused than when we start. Would you just bring some clarity for them? Some here have doubts and, and questions, and, and that's okay. Like Thomas, we want to bring you our doubts and our questions. There'd be some people here that are seeking you and wondering if you're even real. And I pray tonight would be a, a step closer to you. There'll be some people in the room that are maybe drifting. We used to call it backsliding, just kind of sliding away from faith in, in you, maybe through disappointment or doubt or discouragement. And so I pray today that they would turn and, and just run towards you rather than away from you. For us who are believers here tonight, Lord, help us to love you with all of our heart. So easy to let our love go to other things. Idolatry is simply other things taking your place. And so as followers of Jesus, Lord, let us love you afresh tonight. Let us live in the light of eternity and let us be reaching out to our family and friends. We look forward to the day when you return, when you right all wrongs, when justice rules this earth, when peace trumps over war, when love trumps over hate. We look forward to the day of your return and pray we'd be ready and watching. In your wonderful name, everyone said amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information, visit markconnor.com.au.
Be sure to visit kevinconnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books, and his ministry.